Heavenly Father, to you belongs all glory, power, and dominion. We gather here today to worship you and to read and learn from your word. May your spirit open our ears to hear and our minds to understand. We pray for this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For me, Christmas has always been something that I have enjoyed immensely. My wife and children can attest to this. Here it is, the 26th. I've already started my countdown to the next Christmas. I shared a couple of weeks ago with the men's gathering that as long as I could remember, this season has been about hope, about family, even before I knew the reason for the season. We would decorate the day after Thanksgiving, and I'd be all in. I would be stringing lights, putting up ornaments. My mom, when I was old enough to carry scissors, would send me outside to the evergreen bushes, and I would trim from them some garments and some things for our, uh, our mantle on our fireplace. You know, our, our living room, our tree, uh, the mantle, that was pretty much what we did for decorations for Christmas. So there would be the focus of Christmas in our living room. And I would absolutely enjoy that, being with family, just this feeling of hope. I'm sure there was a hope in the presence, but I, I did enjoy the family, the warmth and the love. Then, of course, Christmas would come. The day would be here. Presents would under the tree. I'd wake up my sister early in the morning. We'd go and play with our toys. I would notice that my parents' stocking was empty, so I would sneak into my parents' bathroom and steal Old Spice from my dad, same Old Spice I gave him the year before. And I would take an orange for my mom and put it in her stocking. My grandparents would come over. Sometimes my great aunt would come over as well. It was great. I enjoyed it. And then the very next day, on the 26th, my mom would take all of the Christmas stuff down, every single bit. It was a mildly traumatic event for me. So now we leave Christmas up well into January. But as a kid, and even now, that week between Christmas and New Year's was a bit strange. It was a time of already and not yet. The hope was still there, sort of. You know, but it was kind of different. There was a sense of anticipation in the coming New Year. A sense that there was something to do that I should be getting ready for. Our text has this tension to it. We heard earlier in our scripture reading for this Sunday the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 leave us with a bit of a cliffhanger. It has a wonderful promise and also a dire threat. If we are to leave things as they are at the end of Malachi, the great and awesome day of the Lord could be filled with hope and love or absolute destruction and despair. And this is the ultimate of cliffhangers. If you find it frustrating to wait on the next season of your favorite show, the next sequel of your favorite novel series, or even the next Christmas, you would have been extremely frustrated with the 430-ish years of zero prophecy that occurs between Malachi and Matthew. The audience of our text has a memory of what has been before. Israel was a great kingdom for a period of time, and then it was a divided kingdom. 
and then it was a conquered people. However, even during these trials, God would raise a prophet to deliver his word and call them into repentance and holy living. For 430 years, give or take a few years, the chosen people of God have no prophet to deliver the word. They have essentially been dispersed among other nations, what we call the diaspora, and they really never quite become a kingdom again. This intertestamental period is marked with military conquests and significant changes to the cultural landscape of God's people. Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire and brought with him Hellenism, which is basically a way to say a Greek influence. And this was added into the culture. When Alexander died, his generals divided up the empire and the territory of Israel experienced subtle changes and shifts. Some of this time is recorded in what we call the Apocrypha, which is a term for a collection of writings that are not considered canon. There were efforts to reestablish the kingdom, and one such occurrence is called the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabees were able to gain control of Jerusalem to rededicate the temple. This is commemorated in the holiday of Hanukkah, which is also known as a Feast of Dedication. And out of this religious revival, this desire to return to a zealous purity of the Jewish faith gave rise to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Eventually, the Roman Empire came and conquered the area. The Romans appointed Herod, a descendant of Esau, over the Jews. We know from our previous engagement with the Gospel of Matthew that Herod was a madman, killing those who he perceived as threats to his throne and even children. So the people are and have been waiting for a Messiah. Much as we are waiting for the second coming of Christ, so are they waiting for the first coming of Christ. I'm sure that they have heard rumors of his birth. I'm sure they are in great anticipation of the rise of this Messiah who will deliver them from their seemingly endless exile, this foreign rule, and unite them once more into a great kingdom. And so, here comes John the Baptist, dressed as a prophet, dressed as the prophet Elijah, in fact. He comes not from within the city, not from within the towns, but rather from outside. He comes from the wilderness, from the desert, which has long been held among the Jewish people as a very mysterious place, a place that is extremely spiritual and chaotic. So from this chaos... From this place of wilderness comes the voice of God, telling the people to repent, for the kingdom is near. John the Baptist calls for the people to turn from their sins and to wash themselves clean through a baptism of water. This is reminiscent of the ceremonial cleansing rites that are called for before one could enter into the temple. If you were unclean, you needed to be cleansed of your sin. So John is calling the people to get prepared to be ready. John specifically quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and tells them to prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Yet isn't this what they have been trying to do all along? We see this in the Old Testament, how the law is given, the people sin and turn from God, they face God's judgment, but God ultimately restores God remembers his covenantal promises, even when his people do not. In our text, the Jews still have the temple. 
They're able to make offerings in the temple. They have their religious leaders that are telling them all of the endless ways in which they are supposed to follow procedures, all the ways which they should be doing right so that God will be pleased with them. John the Baptist calls them to repent, but he also brings with him a dire warning, of fire, and judgment. So what do they have to do to get prepared? And how fast do they need to do it before the axe comes and chops them down? Isn't this a question that people ask today? What must I do? When the religious leaders enter the scene in verses 7 through 10, John the Baptist is quick to give them a rebuke. These Pharisees and Sadducees are often thought of in the Bible as groups of people who are the antagonist, the anti-hero to Jesus Christ, who is the champion. Jesus is more than just a champion, of course, and these two groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are more than just the stiff haters of their time. They are, each in their different ways, just like we are. The Pharisees are considered lay members who uphold a piety and rigorous adherence to the Bible, which is essentially the Old Testament. The Sadducees are the ordained. They are the clergy. So when we read John the Baptist's response to them, calling them vipers, wondering who warned them to flee, we need to keep in mind our own sin and our own failures. We should also be cut by John's words. Frederick Dale Bruner tells us this, The wrath of God is not the irritability of God, It is the love of God in friction with injustice. It is the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. The history of the church universal is rife with example after example of the failure of God's people to adhere to the first and second commandments of loving God and loving people as yourself. What does this look like today? Let me give you an example. My father-in-law, Charlie, went to a particular church in Indiana. The denomination is not important for this story, but I can say that this church is an orthodox faith of Jesus Christ, so they should have known better. Charlie had been laid off of work. He was looking to find ways to support his family and to keep their head above water. One day there was a knock at the door, Charlie answered and found two representatives, deacons of the church, at the door with his bill. His bill was the expected tithe that he was supposed to give. Needless to say, Charlie was upset. The church wasn't being what the church should have been. This can create what is called a church hurt. A church hurt is something that a person experiences when they take up an offense that is offered by another member or group from within the church. My father-in-law, Charlie, was upset with the people who came to collect the bill for the church tithe. To be fair, these deacons were probably just doing what they were told, and they were doing it within a biblical understanding. We should support the church. There is an expectation that is talked about in the Bible to tithe. In one sense, they were doing the right thing. 
John the Baptist in verse 3 quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And Isaiah 40, verse 3 reads like this. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Think for a moment, if you will, of the diversity of the landscape that is described before us. If you have ever hiked or been on a forced march, you know that traversing over anything other than flat and smooth terrain can be difficult. The differences of mountains and valleys are apparent in our mental image. As we look at our text, we see something that we do not often see in the same pericope, the same text. We see both the Pharisees and the Sadducees present together in our text. Their diversity of thought, the piety of the Pharisees, and the ordained leadership of the Sadducees are both laid low. They are both vipers. Isaiah and John the Baptist are telling us that we need to make the path straight for God, that we must prepare the way for the Lord. Before we get to the reason why this preparation is important, we should discuss if this is even possible to do. How can we, mere humans, make the mountains and valleys level? What is this meaning? If you look at Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to those who are enduring a time of tremendous upheaval. Israel is in decline. Assyria is a looming threat. And the people seem to be blind to what is coming. The history of nations in Mesopotamia is fraught with conflict. And the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are certainly no exception. They are both eventually conquered and assimilated into other nations, mostly in a brutal fashion. Yet even in exile, they are still God's children. However lost that they may feel due to this exile, the prophet Isaiah still has a message of hope. Yes, you are a sinful people, but God will restore you. As we move forward 700 years to just outside of Jerusalem, John the Baptist tells the people the same thing. And if we move another 2,000 years to Indiana and my father-in-law, Charlie, the message of the Bible is the same. We are all in need of a Savior because not one of us is anything other than a sinner. We should all be prepared for the wrath that is to come. Still, out of this chaos, the Word of God is a beacon of revelation. John the Baptist calls the religious elite a brood of vipers, which is a far cry from a compliment. He correctly and rather bluntly tells them and us that they are far from God. He compares them to the lowest of creatures who crawls on their belly, the creatures who are associated with Satan. But John also has a message of hope for them. The message is that God will be merciful on who he will be merciful. There is still time. 
John the Baptist gives a massive foreshadowing in verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The mission to the Gentiles is certainly present, as John tells the Pharisees and Sadducees how God can save even the rocks. It isn't the qualifications of man that saves. It isn't the joining of the right group or doing the right things that matter. It is God. God has sent John the Baptist to tell them to turn from their ways, to repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist can be the Old Testament and all of its laws pointing to the only Savior, the only way. We, or perhaps just me, can read this text and see a hard man in John the Baptist. I can picture him in his camel hair clothing, his beard sticky with honey, half-eaten insects, little legs sticking out, jabbing his finger at others. If he had a Bible in his hand, I'm sure he'd be thumping it. But now I think of John the Baptist as one who is very caring and loving, speaking tenderly to Jerusalem, spreading a message of hope and coming salvation. In considering my father-in-law, Charlie, yes, there are biblical expectations for us to tithe, to give to the church. We also find that Jesus gave many warnings about the dangers of money. However, the expectations, these acts, this law, even if we undertake them perfectly, are a mere smattering of the holiness that we need. All of us should bear good fruit, as we all know what it is to do good, to act mercifully, to walk in some minor way, a holy walk that is oriented towards God. The representatives that knocked on Charlie's door are not incorrect for reminding him of the needs of the church, nor are they incorrect in reminding Charlie to give. They are incorrect because they are not following the compassion that God has shown towards them. John the Baptist has a warning. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John further points out that while he does a baptism of water for repentance, there is a far better baptism that is vastly more important. This is the gift of God's only begotten Son. Heretofore, we have spoken about what the text offers to us. We have an opportunity to talk about what our text isn't really saying. Just before, in the close of chapter 2, Jesus is still a child. But after our text, we see the baptism of Jesus and the start of his public ministry. What isn't said also speaks volumes about something that is very important about Jesus, that is, his humanity. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. This is a mystery, and it is difficult to grasp fully. Jesus being fully human isn't always what we talk about. We usually understand Christ as acting in a divine way, bringing salvation to earth in such a beautiful, albeit brutal fashion. But Jesus was fully human. He, I am sure, scraped his knee when he fell. 
hit his thumb with a hammer and needed his mom and dad. Jesus, at the time of John the Baptist's preaching, was, I'm sure, ready for his ministry. After all, even as a young boy, Jesus was amazing, all those in the synagogue. Jesus was ready, but his time was not yet. He had to wait. Luke 2, verse 52, tells us that Jesus grew in knowledge. He grew in wisdom. Jesus was still preparing. John the Baptist is serving a very important theological purpose. I had mentioned earlier that John quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, but he's also quoting from Malachi 3, 1, which says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So do you see John the Baptist, perhaps an embodiment of the Old Testament law, calling creation's attention to the Creator, calling us into submission to the law, but he's also pointing to the only covenant keeper that can fulfill the law, Jesus Christ, who, as we consider Malachi 3.1, is God. John the Baptist speaks of the baptism of water that he offers, but his ministry is not enough. If it was, then there would be no need of a Savior because all those who are following the law should be bearing good fruit. So he also tells us of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, which is a judgment of sin, as well as an announcement of the coming salvation for those who repent and turn to God. Our recognition of Christ's sacrifice for us, our acceptance of it, our utter awe of this gift, is an act of repentance. It is the receipt of the God-given gift of repentance. We should note here that the Greek term for repentance is not one of those words that translates directly. The Greek term has a little bit more to it. We can define the act of repentance as turning away from sin and back to God. This is a sufficient and simple explanation, but it also falls quite short of the full meaning, especially when we couple this with the baptism that Jesus brings. Repentance is a change of our minds, our personalities, our whole being. It is not just a one-dimensional shift in a linear course of our lives, but rather a radical, multi-dimensional rebirth of our whole being. It is, as Augustine says, believing what you do not yet see. The reward for this faith is to see what you believe. It is faith, not in ourselves, but faith in Christ. It is worth repeating what John the Baptist tells us there in the second half of verse 11. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We should look at the meaning of this so that we can understand our pericope with better clarity. Does this baptism of the Holy Spirit burn out our sin in a fiery sort of way? Do we receive one or the other, the Holy Spirit or the fire? People do understand this verse in such ways. Let us look at the final verse to help us in our understanding. John tells us his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This returns us to the gracious promise that John speaks, as well as the dire warnings 
the two things that we should take away from this text. Jesus brings us a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. One is a gift that we do not deserve, and the other is the punishment that we all too richly deserve. We might take this and think to ourselves, "Uh uh-oh, I am not a good person. I committed this sin. I did not do the right thing when I had the chance. I'm not going to make it into heaven. Also, we can look upon others as the chaff that will be burned with unquenchable fire. Often, if we do indeed do this, we set ourselves up to be the Pharisees and Sadducees, the mountains and the valleys, pointing not to grace, but rather to specific acts and works. Perhaps in doing so, we might even beat our chests, point to our own qualifications, and thank God that we are so much more holier than they are. The world news and our social media is full of this sort of thing. We don't say someone is being a Bible thumper or a Pharisee. One of our modern terms for this is virtue signaling. Finding out ways of praising a group that we happen to be part of and casting shade on those on the other side. We lift ourselves up, grateful that we are not all like them. We forget who holds the winnowing fork. We forget who holds the axe. Our job is not to chop down the trees. It is not to rake up the leaves. Our job is to have fruit and give it to others. In the simplest of terms, we are to love God and love our neighbor. In order for us to do this, we need to repent. And in order to repent, we need a Savior. We need what John the Baptist tells Jerusalem and the surrounding area is coming, Jesus Christ. The fire of wrath, fire of judgment is very real, and we all absolutely deserve this judgment. God is the source of all good and holy things. Our awareness of our need to repent is the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps that comes to us as we reach out to God in prayer. Perhaps it comes to us as we sit in church and listen to the word proclaimed. Perhaps it comes to us in a friendly and loving correction. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It is very important to know that the leveling of the mountains and valleys, the smoothing of the rough ground, the paving of that highway in the desert is not our doing at all. Surely in this message that John the Baptist is preaching to the area that is Judea, the area that contains both Jews and Gentiles, We can see this understanding. God makes it possible for us to have fellowship with him. God levels the mountains and the valleys. God reconciles us to himself. It is nothing that we do. It is all because of the one whom John the Baptist says is coming, Jesus Christ, who takes upon himself the fire of God's wrath and judgment For us today, we should not take such calls for repentance as an offense or offer it as an offense. Just as it is offered here in our text as a loving rebuke designed to make those who have ears aware of their need for a Savior, it also tells us of our need for a Savior. We should give up on those mountains and valleys of legalism, offense, and brow-beating beratement and turn joyfully to the one who offers to prune our hearts looking not at when he will be returning, 
but knowing that he is already here and that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how gracious are you to look upon us, poor sinners, with love and forgiveness. Lord, we repent of our ways. We pray that as we leave here today, we are able to do your bidding and your will. Help our faith produce good fruit to serve your kingdom. Help us in our worship. Help us in our fellowship. And Lord, help us to love and forgive one another with the same grace and humiliation born from faith in your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It is through his name that we pray. Amen.